0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the Nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted July seventh, 2017, we talk with Professor Jeffrey Mann director of the Center for the Global Political Economy at British Columbia's Simon Fraser University. With Joel Wainwright, he wrote Climate Leviathan, coming in October from Verso Books, and which he discussed for a recent Talking Policy feature on the WPJ website blog. We'll also spotlight top features in the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran. Head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants.
1: Thanks, David. The Group of 20, or G20, has evolved over the past decade from an annual meeting of finance ministers to a summit of the leaders of the world's largest economies. Before the 2008 global financial crisis, G20 gatherings were a kind of boiler room operation, a way for the U.S. officials to demonstrate that, yes, we do understand that the balance of economic power has changed since Bretton Woods. You get a seat at the table. 2008 changed all that, providing an opportunity for the world's largest economies, especially Japan, Germany, China, and the United States, to get on the same page as such things as central bank responses to the financial crisis, climate change policy, or the threat of cybercrime. The G20 has never been perfect. Any group that includes the U.S., South Africa, Russia, Brazil, and India is bound to be unwieldy. But it was something, and by and large, the consensus that emerged from these summits favored moves towards more transparency, coordination of anti-terror and anti-corruption measures, and most of all, the gradual elimination of protectionism. The election of Donald Trump in 2016 changed all that. This year's summit, hosted by Germany and Hamburg on July 7 and 8, will mark the ironic transformation of the United States from chief evangelists for global macroeconomic liberalization to skunk at the picnic. While Trump has veered away from the draconian 45% tariffs he threatened against China and other exporters during the campaign, his protectionism and his harsh language about Germany and other longtime allies over trade deficits and low defense spending has rankled. So, too, has the declaration that the U.S. will withdraw from the Paris Accord on climate change. No one has been more affected by this than Chancellor Angela Merkel of Germany, the dominant engine of the EU's giant economy. Her relationship with Trump verges on toxic, and she has vowed not to bow to him. She has emerged also as the West's leading voice on macroeconomic issues. Whoever believes the problems of the world can be solved by isolationism and protectionism is making a tremendous error, she says. The deliberate abdication of U.S. leadership has been a boon to China, too. Just as dithering over Syria during Obama's term gave Russia a strategic opportunity, Trump's protectionist stance has pushed the EU and China together as never before. The EU also inked a free trade deal with Japan on July 4th, and China's President Li Xipeng arrived early in Hamburg to move EU-China free trade talks in talks with Merkel. Diplomacy, like nature, abhors a vacuum. For World Policy On Air, this is Michael Moran. Listening
0: to World Policy On Air, now this.
1: Torrential rain has drenched China's
2: central region since Saturday, causing roads and air routes to be cut off as well as severe flooding in urban areas. Nanjing saw its worst downpour in 112
0: years. A wildfire has forced more than 2,000 people to flee homes, campsites and hotels in southwest Spain. The flames have reached the protected zone around a national park famed for its biodiversity.
1: The Arctic and Antarctica are warming twice as fast as the rest of the planet.
0: It's an iceberg the size of Delaware that's set to split off from Antarctica's Larsen Ice Shelf. And that's only a sampling of climate and environment crisis news on TV and the internet last month. Similar reports streamed in from Eastern Europe, South Korea, Russia, the USA, and Canada. But climate change threatens to transform not just the environment and life day-to-day, but the entire global order. In their upcoming book, Climate Leviathan, Jeffrey Mann and Joel Wainwright explore how efforts to avoid environmental catastrophe may well reshape geopolitics, and with it the very foundation of state sovereignty. For a recent Talking Policy website feature, World Policy Journal spoke with co-author Mann, director of the Center for the Global Political Economy at British Columbia's Simon Fraser University, and he later went over the same key ground for this podcast. Professor Mann, welcome to World Policy on Air. Thank
2: you very much. I'm glad to be here.
0: A great sea monster of Hebrew scripture, Leviathan has become a common metaphor for the all-powerful nation-state. How does your upcoming book define a climate Leviathan? What would such a Leviathan look like?
2: Well, as you can imagine, the idea for the the something called The Climate Leviathan, was originally uh, drawn from Thomas Hobbes' work from the 1650s, which might sound like a very long and unusual link, but Hobbes was writing uh, in the middle of the English Civil War, and his interest was in imagining a political order that could stop civil war. Basically, ending civil war and the seemingly endless civil wars of his moment became a kind of desperate urge, and so he proposed a political order that he called the Viathan after the biblical monster, which would be a sovereign that raised itself up, let's say, above the world of civil society, the engagements, the everyday lives that we, you and I lead. And this sovereign would be, in many senses, uh, objective, and it would also be immune to uh, criticism. Its only rule would be that the civil society obeys it. And in that way, it could impose an order and a peace upon society. And therefore, Hobbes' argument was that it was in everyone's best interests, yours and mine, to subject themselves to Leviathan in the interests of this greater peace and the freedom that it would allow in the civil society that operated below. And so Joel and I, uh, and I really wanna emphasize throughout all this, that all of this has been very collective work. So I'm speaking often using the word I, but I mean, of course, to involve Joel, my co-author, So Joel and I are thinking about this problem that's posed by global climate change and the potentially catastrophic impacts of climate change. And we are arguing that emergent in global climate governance is a form of leviathan. It won't necessarily be a single sovereign like Hobbes imagined, but it will be, we imagine, an order that... Arrogates to itself the power to save life on Earth. And in our interests, we should all subject ourselves to it. And this is the argument I think that we see emerging in much of the sort of desperation around existing climate governance, is that we need someone, someone to emerge from Paris or Copenhagen or somewhere that will keep us in line and force us to save ourselves because we seem incapable of doing it ourselves.
0: How would you compare this emergent order to something like the United Nations today, which some already consider a global superagency, uh, for better or worse? Well, I, I mean,
2: I, I think that the, the UN in many ways proposes a kind of standard institutional model that we might see something like Climate Leviathan try to mimic. Um, I don't think that I or Joel could really anticipate the institutional form that Climate Leviathan would take, and because... You know, often institutional uh, structures tend to uh, repeat themselves because they seem like the obvious or common sense response to particular problems. I think the UN in some ways perhaps proposes uh, a model for how nations might negotiate or speak to each other. But the kind of power we're talking about right now is quite far from the UN. The UN itself has no coercive capacity Effectively, it isn't uh, you know, the, the overall power. It is a coordinating or federating institute that, in some cases, countries can opt in and out of. That's not the kind of power we're talking about. We're talking about potentially uh, a coordinated group of powerful states or, I suppose, uh, in an ideal world, if this were a good outcome, in an ideal world, a cooperative operation between all states. But we're talking about a group of powers or a power that removes itself from the Federation and dominates it, or in, any, in in many cases, perhaps, produces it. So the UN may, may give us an idea where we're headed, and certainly, you know, the negotiations in Copenhagen and Paris, et cetera, are founded on a model in which the UN kind of debate model, the liberal parliamentary model, will somehow uh, create these uh, solutions to climate change. But I think we see the constant and endless failure of these negotiations being proof that if climate leviathan does emerge from existing global conditions it won't look in the way it exercises power very much like the UN at all.
0: But I was fascinated in in the text interview uh, you say uh, whatever the form it, it will probably allow the existing elites and state powers to stay in control Uh, And they are, of course, are the sources of you might call it selfishness or self-interest that have led to uh, opposition to the kinds of sacrifices necessary to deal with with climate change. Talk a little about that.
2: Sure. So, I I mean, I think that both Joel and I would say that the the principal driver behind the emergence of Climate Leviathan, if we are indeed onto something, uh, is... uh, Uh, Not very well at this point coordinated effort between uh, among global elites, particularly uh, in the industrialized and wealthy global north, but not only um, to as much as possible preserve their privilege, income, status quo, and therefore the social order that supports it. Um, That would require Climate Leviathan to effectively be an agency by which or an institution or an arrangement by which... uh, the the goal of climate adaptation will become as much as possible to keep things as they are. Now, that might require radical institutional and political shifts to allow for flows of capital, uh, institutional forms like the capitalist firm or multinational capitalist firm, uh, existing nation-state sovereignties, if uh, those can still exist in certain frames. All of that will require an enormous amount of uh, political adaptation at the global level keep things as much as possible the same. So it's really about maintaining privilege. And any emergent climate leviathan is organized or will be organized around keeping things as much as possible close to the status quo in terms of our everyday lives.
0: Some leaders are still acting out of doubt about climate change or with short-term politico-economic priorities, uh, such as Trump pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. How do you see this affecting the movement towards a climate leviathan, speeding it up in desperation by other powers, slowing it down, or not changing it much at all?
2: Right. It's a great point. And to be honest with you, I, I I wouldn't want to say I know the answer to that question at all, but I do think that... Uh, the idea that Trump pulling out of Paris, for example, or you know claiming climate change is a hoax and all of this other stuff, uh, is really perhaps just a temporary setback. So, cer- so certainly current, some current, the activities of some current countries and elites uh, are troubling what we might call the the trajectory toward climate Leviathan. But I I think that overall, in fact, in many ways, something like the the withdrawal from Paris Agreement of the Trump administration, in many ways, has reaffirmed. Or allowed other nations to reaffirm the overall global trajectory, so you see China trying to stake some claim to leadership, even Canada making a kind of weak attempt at, at coordinating the processes that are going on Europe certainly setting itself up to be uh, you know a global leader in managing climate change or adapting to climate change so definitely there are troubling perspectives uh, that are going to make this tra- transition if it happens much more uneven than perhaps our account reflects, but it's, I think the momentum is there. And I would also add that, you know, I don't really believe that no one in the Trump administration thinks climate change is a hoax. I actually just think that pulling out of Paris is part of an, um, the American, or at least the Administration' strategy to keep their options open, because that perhaps they believe, and they might very well be right, that the existing agreements are actually not going to do anything for climate change, and the chaos is, that is about to ensue, they want as much freedom as possible to deal with it the way that they choose in a sovereign manner. So I, I would say that you know the trajectory here is, is by no means uh, entirely slowed down.
0: And interestingly, even uh, in a catalytic way inside the United States, uh, Trump's action is being uh, contradicted by a number of states and cities saying that they are going to sort of uh, move independently. And that would sort of go to your point, that it's becoming a, a, a more commonly shared perception and mm-hmm. commitment.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, uh, when when I originally spoke uh, with uh, your colleague and in the interview that was that was turned into a textual, uh, format. Uh, I tried to, I tried to emphasize the fact that, you know, there's sometimes there's discussion of whether or not, say, for example, for China, there are incentives now that, Trump seems to have pulled out the minimal commitments that the U.S. had made in the beginning for Paris. And there were some discussions as to whether or not the incentives for other nations were now minimized. But I actually think that at the global scale, virtually every nation, and in some ways the more powerful, the more they recognize this, that the incentive to respond to climate change is no longer even the right word. We're in a situation where it's imperative. It is not like the Chinese state looks around and thinks, oh, Should we respond to the effects of global climate change or not? They know they have to. The entire geopolitical order, at least inside China, depends upon the stability of the kinds of uh, productive capacities that, you know, really require the stable environment in which we live, at least temporarily for now.
0: You argue that the capitalist elite is motivated toward adaptation to preserve the existing order and its own place in it, which I, I guess is a sort of follow on from what you said earlier. Uh, what mm-hmm. does success look like for these actors who are trying to remain, uh, retain their power, their position, and uh, do it in, in such a way that slows or, or reverses climate change?
2: Right well i I'll try to just quickly respond to, to sort of two features of that of that uh question which is a which is a really really good uh thing to think about right now um i think success looks uh as i said uh or as i tried to hint in, earlier in our discussion success looks i think for them as much as possible that things stay the same that the 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 that the global order the global geopolitical order which is organized mostly around a kind of vaguely free trade agenda and the dominance of several capitalist states um, and the internal order which is obviously our you know hierarchically organized mostly liberal capitalist societies in the global north again as if those things can be maintained and that might require enormous emergency measures on the part of elites but if those things can be maintained then that's success i don't think that the forces driving forward climate leviathan have an actual interest in losing national sovereignty. I think they might find themselves in a situation at which at at least in the range of managing carbon emissions, they may need to relinquish power to a sort of planetary, perhaps sovereign mode to allow them to keep their own domestic spheres as much as possible like today. But success will look like the maintenance of the existing liberal capitalist order.
0: You also mention a gap between current efforts to address climate change and what you call climate justice. How do you define climate justice and what actions might lessen the gap?
2: Well, climate justice, I, I, I think it, it could probably be one of those terms that people could frame exactly as they choose, and it would have no agreed-upon definition. But I, for Joel and I, climate justice describes a situation that at least – speaking from this point now uh this point forward which is a point at which we believe that reversing climate change is impossible that 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 the the window for mitigation to keep us within these two degree limits and things like that has closed and i think we need to accept that i think the powers that be have implicitly accepted that and so reversing climate change is no longer an option, I don't think. So this is a question about how we move forward. And therefore, climate justice is about how we move forward in a just way, socially just, ecologically just in the environmental justice frame, um, and clearly politically, economically just in terms of the distribution of the available resources and incomes and security and dignity that will be available in the future. Right now, the world is extraordinarily unequal and becoming more so every second. And that will have to be reversed along with attempts to manage uh, our increasingly warm world. Um, And so climate justice is a description of the the coming transition, which I think no one who doesn't have their head stuck in the sand uh, will recognize must be done, and that that transition must be managed in a way that's distributionally uh, and politically just and democratic, which is why I actually have some hope, because I think that... uh, that climate justice, if we can work toward it, is really about uh, democracy in a very real sense, which is to remove uh, the implicit container of the nation state around what we now understand democracy to mean and to imagine multi-scalar, local, international, uh, what we call or at least what we now call international. Multiscalar attempts to bring people together—people who might not even necessarily agree on all political issues, but at least have common interests in confronting the problem of climate change—and imagining a whole range of responses to that um, that will be uh, sometimes coordinated, sometimes not. But the key, I think, will be to democratize uh, how we respond. So you can see examples like what you mentioned earlier in cities, where cities are are shirking—you uh, know—the the, the image of american not caring and uh... taking on the problem of climate change also taking on the problem of other closely related problems like uh... immigration uh... sanctuary cities making themselves safe for people fleeing conflicts that are in many cases partly driven by climate so we see all these responses and some of them are quite radical and left uh... in the political sense uh, you know and there's and there's also fantastic uh... Alliances are emerging around things like the opposition to the the opposition in Standing Rock and the Dakota Access Pipeline Opposition to pipelines here in Canada, which are of course caught up in climate struggles Um, There's Via Campesina, which has been organizing uh, Peasant based struggles in the global south for years and years and years. There's uh, no one is illegal fighting for refugee and migrant rights uh, Who are people who are again fleeing situations that are always caught up in environmental transition so I actually think that climate justice will look not just like one thing. It'll look like a multi uh fascinating, partly coordinated, partly ad hoc uh, response to uh, the incapacity of the nation state and its elites to get us out of this trouble.
0: You didn't mention it in the earlier interview, but it strikes me that you might get some assistance from technology in two ways obviously technology can deal with certain physical facts and aspects and it can perhaps get the water uh, from the seas but it also is going to force a kind of a justice in income uh, equity uh, because so much work is going to be taken away from human beings and done by machines that already many sources uh, liberal and conservative are talking about guaranteed incomes because there simply isn 't enough work to go around as we look into mm-hmm. the future, and yet people need money to be consumers if the whole cycle is going to work at all
2: mm-hmm. no uh, it 's not something i 've thought a lot about in that frame, but it is a very good point i mean certainly unless uh, the current trajectory of uh, you know modern technology and the way in which it is uh, increasingly a part of our productive capacity there, that that is going to produce undeniable uh disjuncture. And if for no other reason, uh those in power will have an interest in something like a guaranteed minimum income, if only just to maintain the stability of the existing order. People are not going to sit around starving and, and not, you know, cause some trouble. So there needs to be a way to manage the dis the displacement or disjunction there. The other and in some ways uh you know fascinating but also quasi-terrifying way in which technology plays a role in this is, is in the emergent and increasingly loud discussion around geoengineering as a way to use technology to manage the planet in a way that allows our con- existing systems to persist. So we're really literally at a point where there are many people saying that faced with the, uh, faced with the option of, of capitalism and the existing nation-state order changing or us abs- actually physically altering the Atmospheric chemistry and ecology of the planet, we have to choose changing the planet because changing the existing order is too hard.
1: Huh.
2: Which is a crazy thought, but it really is
0: where we're at. Professor Mann, thank you. Oh,
2: thank you. It was really great to talk to you.
0: Professor Jeffrey Mann, as director of the Center for the Global Political Economy at British Columbia's Simon Fraser University, with Joel Wainwright, he wrote Climate Leviathan. Coming in October from Verso Books, and which he discussed for a recent talking policy feature on the WPJ website blog and this podcast. Since we spoke, new research indicates that CO2 emissions may cause even greater temperature rises than suggested by past measurements on which most projections have been based. Global temperature is likely to be 2.6 to 4.8 degrees Celsius higher by the end of the century if such emissions are not cut, according to the study published in the journal Science Advances. At the G20 meeting in Hamburg, British Prime Minister Theresa May was expected to challenge President Trump over withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement, saying there was no need for renegotiation Trump has suggested. But there were reports that the U.S. might not be as isolated as activists wished, with mixed signals from Saudi Arabia, Russia, Turkey, and Indonesia on how strongly they will support the agreement in final G20 documents. Featured in the new WPJ summer issue, cover line Justice Denied, you'll find articles about how Egypt's lawmakers codify oppression why Honduran farmers sued the World Bank for investing in murder, what imperils disruptive New Berlin, and much more. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on the often deadly divergence between common policing practices and new theories about law enforcement, with democracy itself arguably at stake. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the non-profit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, online news editor Laurel Jerombek, podcast producer Anna Grace Carter. I'm David Alpern.